When asked about job satisfaction, people will cite salary, environment, challenge, progression, colleagues, training, and fun as reasons for going to work. But neuroscientists are busy researching the workings of the human brain, studying behavior and reward systems. Could it be true that it's not the money, it's what you do to get it? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Gregory Burns of Emory University. Dr. Burns is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University and Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology. His work in functional imaging extends into several areas of computational and cognitive neuroscience, including novelty and reward processing, human social interaction, and neural economics. He is the author of a book entitled Satisfaction. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Thank you. Great to be here. Dr. Burns, unlike presenting other stimuli to study the brain, such as food, it's difficult to study the intrinsically arousing properties of money, isn't it? It is difficult because it means something different to everybody. So how do you go about studying it? Well, the usual way that we study the effects of money is to, there's, there's essentially two approaches and now a third the first approach is you simply ask people how they're feeling about something. And this is often the approach that employers take um, in various types of annual reviews and performance reviews, um, where we ask the person to rate their job satisfaction, which includes things like uh, compensation. Although that has limitations, obviously, because people are only willing to a certain degree to talk about what money means to them. And it's not often that we think about it very deeply anyway. The second way is to forget about what people say and see what they do. And this is really the economic uh, point of view, which is it doesn't really matter what people say. Um, the only thing that matters is what they use their money for, and that's uh, what money means to them. Right. But as you are studying using um, functional MRI, usually, I, th I believe, um, you need to find a reward or a stimuli that is salient in order to stimulate a striatal response when you're trying to study the effects of the reward of money. That's right. So basically, neuroeconomics as a field has grown up um, in the space of about three years to, to look at, amongst other things, the effects of, of money on decision-making, and specifically what parts of the brain process money, and how that translates into decision-making. So the results are quite interesting, although one factor that has to be controlled for is this problem of what money means to people. So how have you and your colleagues managed to study monetary reward in order to learn more about brain functioning? Well, there's a couple ways. All of these are done in an MRI scanner using a technique called functional MRI, which lets us monitor blood flow changes while a person does some type of uh, usually a computer-based task. Um, one way to study this is to manipulate how much money a person is earning and then look at brain responses that track the amount of money that they get during the task. Very simple, very straightforward. The idea being that if you can identify those brain regions, then um, they probably have something to do with reward and motivation because we know that money is motivating but for varying reasons. Why doesn't money, and lottery winners come to mind here, why doesn't money lead to long-lasting improvements in well-being? Uh, that's the million-dollar question that everyone wants to know. Um, the term for it is called the hedonic treadmill, which is a, a term that goes back to a social psychologist in the 70s who observed exactly what she said. 
that people who win the lottery often find themselves no happier a year after winning than they were before. And so what he said was, well, money puts you on what's called a, a treadmill. It's more like a rat wheel, really, that we strive to earn more of it. And then the more you have, the more you want. And that there's, there's really never an end point to it. Um, that has always been framed in terms of psychological processes that, you know, we just get used to a certain lifestyle and then we, we gauge our improvements or losses from that, what we call status quo. A more interesting and I think intriguing approach is to frame that problem from a biological viewpoint. So it could be, and in fact there's a lot of evidence for this, that the brain also adapts to things at a biological level that given a certain amount of reward, whether you're a human pursuing money or whether you're a rat pursuing food or a monkey pursuing food, um, the brain, and specifically the dopamine system probably, adapts so that it only detects changes from a current level of, of reward. So satisfaction will always fade. You need to keep on that treadmill. What will pr- provide um, the pleasure again? What will allow there to be satisfaction again? There's two ways to do it. One is to get more of whatever it is that you're pursuing, but that puts you on the treadmill to get more and more and more, never to be satisfied. The other approach, which I think um, actually is more promising, is to pursue different things. And the reason I say that is because one of the other great releasers of dopamine in the human brain and animal brains is novelty. turns out that dopamine does, is only kind of peripherally involved with pleasure. What it, it's more crucially involved with is learning. And learning occurs anytime something unexpected happens to you. And, and so one way to release dopamine, and we know that it's associated with, with positive feelings, is to put yourself in a position of experiencing things that you didn't expect, which we can call novelty. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. So, Dr. Burns, why do money and risk always go together? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, the reason has to do with an obscure mathematical theorem discovered in the 18th century. And it has to do with what we were just talking about, which is the fact that the more money you get, the less bang for the buck that you get out of it. Um, you can call it the law of diminishing returns. So, because you get less bang for the buck the more you get, it changes your view towards money. If you always got the same uh, satisfaction from $100, whether you, had, whether you already had 100 or whether you had 10000 um, then it wouldn't really matter. But the fact that you don't means that you will essentially gamble for things um, in certain circumstances and not others. How do you mean? How would you gamble? Um, so you can play a kind of hypothetical game. If you walk into a bar and you offer someone, say, $20, you put $20 down on the bar, you offer anyone to take this bet, you flip a coin, heads, they win $20, tails, they have to give you $20. You will probably get a small portion of people willing to take that bet. Now, if you reframe it, say, with a $100 bill, it's very likely you will get no takers or certainly fewer 
Now, what's weird about this is that the odds of winning are 50-50 in either case, and the odds of losing are 50-50 in either case. But because of the diminishing returns, the bang you get out of $100 is actually relatively less than the bang you would get out of $20. Now, what's strange about it is that it's, it's not the same for losing money, that people view losing money in a different way than they gain it. All of this just points out that, that we don't treat money at its face value. And a lot of it has to do with these distortions uh, that the brain makes on these numbers. Right. And we're talking about money as it's connected to work. But let's shift the conversation a little bit to work. In studying the effects of monetary reward on striatal activity, you and your colleagues found evidence for the pleasure of work. And that's not necessarily connected to money. For as long as economists have been studying this and for as long as people have been working, People have viewed work as a negative thing, by and large. That's why you get paid for it, uh, to compensate you for whatever it is that you're doing. So if this is true, we decided to look in the brain to see how the brain actually views work, even if it's just a little work. Simplistically, you would expect work to be a negative, like losing money, and money, if you gain it for it, to be a positive. But in fact, what we found when we did an experiment on this is that when people had to work for their money, we saw greater uh, responses in, in what's called the striatal system, which is also the side of dopamine receptors, when they had to work for the money. In fact, it was more so than if we just gave it to them for doing nothing. So since it's not just money that, that allows us to derive satisfaction from work, let's talk about work that individuals engage in for no money, such as figuring out puzzles. Solving puzzles provides intellectual novelty, but how does that fit in with the need to predict how the world works? Well, one of the things that we have to realize um, where the human brain came from in terms of evolution is that we evolved in a world that is constantly changing. And in fact, the only reason that we're here today is because our ancestors, tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago, were able to adapt to an environment that was changing. So from evolution, from the perspective of evolution, change is what drives everything. If nothing changes, then there's no evolution. But of course things change, and the fact that we compete with each other, that humans compete with humans for resources, is the greatest source of novelty and change. So the brain has evolved a very effective system for motivating behavior, and that is that if something unexpected happens, as you didn't predict it, then you better do something about it, and that means you either pursue it or you run away from it. And that has everything to do with the dopamine system and is probably one of the most important functions of dopamine. And that is to respond to errors of prediction and, and actually take action. Where does curiosity come into play here? Well, if you think this is, this is just speculation, but if you buy into this view of, of evolution being driven by a dynamic environment, there's a certain payoff for animals that are willing to explore the environment, to exploit it for advantages that other animals might not have. There will be some animals that do this and some animals that don't. But some people, therefore, will have a greater sense of curiosity um, than others, and it could very well be that their reward systems are more attuned to these types of prediction errors or novelty seeking. And some people are very enthusiastic about their work or about um, doing things like crosswords or learning everything there is to know about a certain subject. How do you explain in some people the addictive quality of curiosity? 
I think you're right. Curiosity can be very addicting. Um, the way it plays out is quite variable, but since dopamine is involved, and we know dopamine receptors are probably the hottest target for things that we would associate with addictive or at least compulsive behavior. Compulsion is probably the better term for it because when dopamine is released, I mean, that is a signal in the brain that essentially is like a fuel injector for doing something. And curiosity and novelty just feed that pump and you keep doing something. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you, Dr. Burns. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.